Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. During this series, we are reading and discussing On the Incarnation by Athanasius of Alexandria. In this small volume, Athanasius expounds on the truths of Christ's incarnation with great precision and clarity. Written in the 4th century AD, there have been few works since that time that have come close to being as rich and concise in their explanation of this vital doctrine. So sit back and prepare to have your heart and mind engaged as we dive into On the Incarnation by Athanasius of Alexandria. Hello and welcome to the Ardent Archives. The Ardent Archives is a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we are exploring the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. I am your host, Drew Bieber, and I am joined here by my co-host, Pastor Josh McDaniel. Josh, how are you doing today? Drew, I'm doing very well. Glad to be here. This is exciting. Uh, One of my favorite books of all time we'll be discussing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I figure that since this is the uh, first installment of the Ardent Archives, as well as our first uh, discussion episode, I figured this would be a good opportunity for us to uh, introduce uh, the podcast, introduce ourselves as the host, and then also introduce the book that we are going to be uh, reading and discussing during this, uh, this series. So, Starting with the podcast, as we mentioned, we are a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. We are located in Clay, Alabama, and sort of the uh, the goal and the drive behind this podcast was to provide uh, the members of our church a uh, sort of a resource and a repository of solid biblical resources. Um, I can speak for myself and say that I am not very good at reading. Um, Obviously, you you read the book for this series, and uh, so everyone knows that you're obviously very good at reading. I I am literate, yes. (laughs) But, you know, I don't want to speak for everyone and say that nobody reads, but I think it's pretty definitional of my generation that we we don't take reading very seriously. Well, not Uh, just your generation. I mean, like, I mean, even, you know, generations before ours, you know, the— idea or the the love of reading is going out the window if you ask right. a student today or people our age hey you know do you like to read a lot of them will say no and i i do you know i don't want to dwell on this too much but christians are called people of the book the reality that our people in our nation and our world right now are straying from books it's you know there is there is a lot of spiritual things that are going on on that we're seeing a lot of fallout right, right. because people of the book are not in any book right right and that's certainly the reality you know we are as christians we're a word centered religion and you know obviously i think um you know, I think if Christians were honest, we would say we don't read our Bibles very well. But even if we do read our Bibles very well, we're not cultivating this practice of reading, um, it, you know, in order to be good, uh, good people of the Word, to be good uh, studiers of the Word. And so this is, this is a practice that is neglected. This is a practice that people don't take seriously. This is something that people don't uh, really focus on. And certainly the advent of technology and uh, uh, other ways of consuming media has definitely contributed to that, although they have been helpful in other areas. But one thing we wanted to do was we wanted to provide a, a resource for our members where they could go and they could be introduced to solid biblical resources, biblical uh, word-centered books, um, 
and uh, specifically books from the history of the church. Um, you know, like I've said, people in my generation don't read, and we certainly don't read from history. Uh, well, the and this is not pretty much the problem. extent of our reading is. Uh, you know, reading the text on websites or the descriptions in Netflix, you know, <laughs> right. That's about all right. we read. That's, that's it. You know, um, but this is not, it didn't start. Uh, it didn't start. It's not like we've been dropped in the middle of this problem. This is something that's been going on for a while. Uh, you know, the introduction to, uh, on the incarnation, uh, is written by C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis in his day wrote uh, as the introduction, the first sentence says, there is a strange idea abroad that in every subject, the ancient books should be read only by the professionals and that the amateur should content himself with the modern hmm. books. And you know, and the, when, when, when was C.S. Lewis around? He was, uh, I guess, World he War was I, World uh, War II? Uh, yeah, early yeah really. I mean, we, we know him a lot, uh, the 40s, you know, and, 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 and the 30s and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, even, so in, even in the day, 30s and the 40s, people were, were not reading. They, they weren't, weren't reading. Reading old books, they were old, you know right. they might have been reading contemporary stuff. They were looking at, at things around those times, you know, but they were not a uh, no. They they were still kind of snubbing their nose at at the old or the ancient writings, you know, because they felt like maybe the the new ones were easier to understand, right, right. or maybe that the old ones were too advanced for them. Yeah, and so that's that's really the goal of this uh, this podcast is pr- to provide um, a resource. Uh, we're going to be reading through the books in their entirety uh, from front to back. And so this isn't just a uh, sort of conversational uh, discussion podcast, but really we're going to be reading the books and then discussing them uh, as well. And really, you know, as I think about my generation and I think about the generation after me, uh, you know, I only see this this problem as, as becoming worse. It's yeah. not something that that is being fixed. It's not something that's that I see is really changing in, in the near future. And so even when I think about my kids, uh, the idea that my kids could could go to a resource like this and have access to mm-hmm. uh, solid biblical resources, solid biblical books, um, and to be able to learn from these books um, and be able to consume them in a way that is, um, you know, that's entertaining, uh, it's easy to listen to, uh, sometimes it's hard to find time in our sort of busy world to really sit down and, and dedicate time to reading books. And so providing sort of an audio book and then also a good discussion, I think, will will provide provide people a way to not only consume these books, but then also be able to learn from them in, in a meaningful way. And books that have stood the test of time. Right. You know, one right. of the dangers about reading only the contemporaries or the modern things that are being written um, and, and certainly even in our uh, recent years, we have seen contemporary and modern and uh, very good preachers and and, and solid communicators and teachers, we have seen them fall in some massive ways. Mm-hmm. And some of them have even completely denied the truths that they proclaimed with such fervency. I mean, even, you know, five, six years ago. Right. And now right. they're falling to that. When you read the ancients and when you read the, the, the stuff that stood the test of time, they have stood the test of time because they have proclaimed truths and the writers of those, those books uh, they were they persevered until the end, uh, and you see that the truths they proclaimed persevered, right? Even right. to where we sit today. Yeah, yeah, and that's a and that's a big deal. You know, a lot of people, you know, s- Scripture lays out very clearly that that the mark of a Christian is is by their fruit. You will know them mm-hmm. by their fruit, and fruit takes time. 
to produce. <laughs> right. Uh, someone can claim to be uh, a particular type of tree, a particular type of Christian, but you don't actually know until you've they've had the time to produce that type of fruit. And and like you said, what we're seeing with a lot of a lot of the moderns is that we see some very bold, some very uh, strong claims out on the front, and then over time, we see that the fruit of their lives is not consistent with their claims. Right. And so that's one of the one of the benefits of learning from history. Is like you said, these are these are uh, truths that have stood the test of time. We have seen the fruit of of these truths, and that mm-hmm. these aren't just empty claims. These aren't just empty words, but they are. Uh, they're ultimately true because they're not only consistent with God's word, but they've also stood um, the test of time. And so, what we're planning to do with this uh, with this podcast is we're planning to hopefully release a new book uh, every quarter. Um, and like I say, we'll be reading through the book in its entirety from the front to back, and then we'll also be providing discussions um, after we've read through uh, the book as well. And so, like I say, I, I say hopefully because. You know, working in a church, being a pastor. Um, I'm working on uh, becoming a pastor and being ordained, uh, and also not only that, but also having families. Um, mm-hmm. It's easy for for things to sort of get lost in the shuffle, and so it is our goal to uh, to have a new book available once a quarter, um, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, to live up to that goal. And, and so, what a book to start off with, too. This is one of my favorite books in all of Christian literature. It is, it is, and you know. I kind of had the idea for this podcast and really was hearing you talk about this book and how you read it every year that really mm-hmm. sort of spoke to me and said, hey, if we're going to if we're going to start with something, it needs to be this book. So why don't you go ahead and tell us, well, first of all, just a little bit about yourself, Josh, yeah. and then also what this book means to you. Where did you come to hear about it? Um, you know, what's your what's your Christmas tradition when it comes to this yeah. book? Um, just kind of let us know a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, as far as, you know, kind of who I am, uh, again, it's Josh McDaniel, and uh, I am the children's and student pastor here at North Clay Baptist, and I've been serving with the people here and, and, uh, and, and ministering to them since uh, the summer of 2008, which seems like forever ago now you know and and if you ask the students and children who I was working with at the beginning they say yeah it's even longer than he thinks I'm mm. sure but no, I, 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 so I've been working here for a while and I've, I've been blessed to see um, kids grow up and 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 graduate uh, high school and and go off to have their own uh, children and start their own families and and one of the amazing things is I've been working with my family uh, is that that kids of all ages, man? They even if they don't read themselves, they love to they love to have things read mm-hmm. to them. And uh, and my kids every night we settle in and we read, and I make all these silly voices, you know, and do all these kind of uh, little narratives and, and all this kind of stuff. And so, uh, at my heart, uh, I am I am a pastor who loves to you know, kind of get on the playground with, with kids and, and, mm-hmm. and, and to, and to get into, into the stories and into the books and into, into narratives with kids really of all ages. Cause I, in, in some ways, and, and if you ever talk to my wife, <laughs> she'll tell you, I never really grew up past that point either. So that's kind of who I am in a nutshell. Now, when I was introduced to Athanasius, I was in Bible college uh, and you know, you grow up through your teen years and, and, and I was in the same condition that uh, we've kind of spoken with. I, I, I did read, 
I, I enjoyed reading um, some, but I, I did not read a lot of the the ancient writings. Mm-hmm. Or I didn't read a lot of the the books that had stood the test of time. I had through high school read things like Pilgrim's Progress. I had read Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. There were some that I had read that predated me, uh, or predated my time. But for the most point, most part, I I, I jumped into current contemporary writings. In Bible college, I was introduced to this book um, by Saint Athanasius on the Incarnation. And it was kind of presented to me as uh, the book about the topic of the incarnation of Christ, which is Christ, God the Son, coming to earth as a human, being God with flesh, being God with skin on, the God-man, the idea of him being incarnate. Now, this is the book on it. And so I I went and, and uh, I had to buy it for the class, and it struck me immediately how small the book is. Right. Because when right. you think of that topic, you think, man, this has got to have, you know, a thousand pages for the introduction, <laughs> you know. Uh, but it struck me how small it was. And I read it, and the first time I read it, I couldn't put it down. And, and because it's so short, I mean, I read it. I read it in like a day. Mm-hmm. I, it was actually a little bit more than that. It was it was a day and a half, realistically. But I, I, I gained so much knowledge at that point. I have repeatedly gone back to read it. In fact, it is not the Christmas season for me. It is not the Christmas time of year until I have sat down and I have read on the Incarnation. I do it different every year. Sometimes I read it in a day. Sometimes I read it in a week. Or sometimes I stretch it out over the course of the Christmas season. But it it really, every time I, I read it and every time that I, I have it read to me, because I've listened to it on audiobooks as well, I feel like I learned something new. Mm-hmm. And it's it has been a a treasure for me. So what about you, man? Where did you hear about this book? Yeah, so I, you know, like I said, my name is Drew Bieber. Uh that is Bieber like Justin. There is uh no known relation, but uh you know, it's it's a a sure possibility. Well we'll we'll put it there. Um and I am the uh worship leader here at at North Clay Baptist Church. Um and I've been uh uh, leading uh, worship for our students for about two years, and then leading on on Sunday mornings um, for the last few months. I guess it's yeah. September. Um, and you know, I uh, I'm married. I have uh, two small boys, um, and they are just the best things I've ever done with my life. Um, <laughs> I you know I struggled for a long time. You know, in my in high school, and then especially in my early twenties, trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up. Mm-hmm. And when my first son Jude was born, it just kind of struck me that like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. Being a dad, that's, that's, this is what I was made for. Right. You know, anything else, it really doesn't matter. You know, whatever your job is, whatever your passions are, that's, you know, that's great. But this is, this was it. I knew what mm-hmm. I was, I knew what I was going to do with the rest of my life um, at that point. And, uh, and so when, when it came to this book, you know, one of the, one of the big influences in my life is a guy named Dr. James White. I know yeah. you've, you've heard of him. Um, and he is an apologist. He's a textual uh, textual critic, a really smart guy. 
Um, and one of the things he emphasizes throughout his ministry is really just going back to the sources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not not depending on what you heard from so and so, but really going uh, to original sources um, and historical sources to find out what uh, what is true. And specifically, when it comes to the claims of of the Christian faith, um, the closer we can get to the apostles, um, the closer we can get to the, the truth that they proclaimed. Right. And and so I have heard I had heard him throughout his uh, you know he's got a, a a webcast that he's been doing for you know since the '90s really um, and he was in radio uh, before that and uh, you know I had heard him mention uh, Athanasius before and I'd heard the name before I'd heard of the book um, but kind of like you I'd never really interacted with it um, never really read it and I was actually at Second and Charles down in Hoover and. Oh, yeah. um, you know, we were looking for some books and, and this book was on the shelf and same thing. I saw the book and I almost had to do a double take. Like I kind of took it off the shelf and put it back and then had to grab it again and wait, wait, I, I know this book. I've heard of this book. Right. Athanasius is, is kind of a big deal. Right. And same thing. It, it just, I was immediately struck by the fact that this book is, is so small. I mean, it's not even a hundred pages. No. Um, I think it's, I think 72 pages, 70 or 72 pages. Let's see what this edition is. Um, and, and it, it struck me immediately that like, wait a second, this is, th- this is that book. And yet it's so small. And I want to say it was only one or $2, uh, there. Cause I mean, it's a used book. And so I bought it and, and same thing. I read it and I just, I couldn't put it down. I think I finished it in, in like two days. And yeah, in this edition you have is 72 pages. Right. That's that good recall. <laughs> Drew. Yeah. Well, you know, I try, <laughs> good. but you know, one of the things, uh, and I don't know if I heard this from you, but uh, a couple of years ago, I started reading it uh, every year around Christmas time. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's I heard it from you, or I just thought, you know, this deals specifically with uh, the Word being made flesh, mm-hmm. and that's something that we celebrate every year at Christmas. And we take and, an entire month to celebrate, right? And and so I just I decided that you know what, this is something that I'm going to make a discipline. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to read this book every year around Christmas. Um, and as my boys grow up, I hope to, you know, to read it to them and then have them read it, mm-hmm. you know, going forward. And uh, same thing, like I, it's, it's, it's quite astounding that for a book so small um, that it is packed with so much rich doctrine and rich truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've kind of talked about this before that, you know, several books on the subject are usually about, you know, three or four inches thick. Yes. You know, they're, they're just massive works. And, and there's certainly, there's enough material there to fill volumes of that size. Yes. And yet Athanasius was able to do it in a very concise, uh, very uh, pointed uh, way and, and not, really, not really waste any time or waste any space, you know, writing things, you know, ma- making his point, essentially. It's remarkable how much he says mm-hmm. in so little a space. In fact, you know, and I've read other things that deal with this subject, and and they do dive into areas that that he did not dive into. Um, but at the end of the day, I still don't know if they cover the subject in any more of a of an easy or an explanatory way than he does. There's, there's right, he right. he. He dives into it and he just he says it and he makes no he 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 argues for the incarnation in it that's that's a big crux of what he does but it's almost like and, and when you read it it's it's almost like he's not mocking 
But he's laughing at the idea that, you mean you don't believe this when it is right. so obvious, there, when it is so evident? There's definitely some hints of sarcasm in, there is. in, in the way he phrases certain things where— you know, especially in his refutations when he's dealing with, with the Greek philosophers, there's almost a, you know, sort of sarcastic, well, they think they're so great. But, right, right. But let me just go ahead and, and just kind of take that illusion away for a second. And it's and, because and let of you that, see behind the veil and see just how ridiculous they are for denying these things. Right, and it's because of that tone that I think he's able to do so much with so little because you're laughing alongside him when he does it because he's like, you're right, Athanasius. I mean, it's it's so obvious. It's so evident. These other worldviews or mindsets they crumble. Right, at right. The incarnation. You know, and, and one other thing with reading some some more uh, some more modern you know works on on the subject is a lot of them. You know, a lot of what takes up a lot of space in those in those books is is footnotes mm-hmm. having to reference uh, you know people that came before. And this is another thing that really stuck out to me in, in reading on the incarnation is that there's essentially there's no footnotes. Right. And, and the only footnotes that are there are references either that he makes to his other books or, or to the scriptures. And that's it. And he doesn't um, even footnote them as much as he just quotes the scriptures. Right. And the, he just puts a little the, reference in there. Yeah. And that's it. Um, and so there's virtually no footnotes. And that's, and that's another thing that's remarkable, especially when we're talking about things that have stood the, uh, the test of time. And so let's kind of uh, pivot just slightly um, and really let's get into who Athanasius was and, and some of the background behind, uh, behind this book on the Incarnation. And so, uh, you know, we mentioned this in, in the introduction to, uh, to the book and to the podcast that this was actually written in uh, the 300s. Um, I think the, the, there's not a definitive date on when it was written, but most people agree it was around 319, 320, 321 ish. Kind yeah. of in you know, the those earliest early stuff heard is 318. But yeah. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's it's very yeah, very within a three, four year window. Right, right. And so that's we're talking about that's over seventeen hundred years ago. Yeah. This book was written. And the fact that it still remains a staple in the area of theology, and especially when it comes to this doctrine of, of the Incarnation, is pretty astounding. One of, the, one of the mistakes, you know, certainly, I know you can speak for people in your generation, but certainly for mine is we think that nobody's as smart as I am, and right. nobody's as smart as, right. as the modern generation, right. you know? Uh, yeah, but back then they used to believe the Earth was flat. Now we have science. Oh, wait have, a minute! Wait a minute! And I have and I have Google. flat Earth's back, Drew. Haven't you heard? Well, yeah, that's that's that's. Uh, I guess that's another another subject altogether. <laughs> but but one of the things you know, we have this idea that we are the smartest generation, right? And that knowledge only increases. And I think that if we look at our culture today, if we look at the things that we consume, the things that entertain us. Uh, we'll quickly see that that's not the case. Right. But, but what we're looking at with On the Incarnation is we're looking at a guy who lived in the 300s mm-hmm. who had all this knowledge and all this wisdom and all this insight when it comes to these theological truths. And, and maybe even most shocking when you, when you start looking into his life and, and who he was, we don't know anything about... Uh, there's nothing written about Athanasius until he starts training under Bishop Alexander, right, who was right. the bishop at Alexandria before uh, Athanasius took it. Right, we right. 
kind of assume we can't be dogmatic about it, but we do make the we do make the conclusion that Athanasius might have been raised in even a pagan home, that that he might not have known anything about Christ or about the gospel, mm-hmm. because it's only after he's introduced to the gospel and saved that we start knowing anything about him at all right, when he's training right. with Alexander. And so the fact that he has such a mind that's tuned to Christ and 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 who he is and what scripture reveals about him and he didn't have a foundation established when he was a child is a testimony to the work of God. Right. And it's right. a testimony to the power of scripture and and to to how his his mind was focused and zeroed in on knowing his savior. Mm-hmm. Well, and I speak for myself, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. Um and you know, I've I've you know, basically been in church the entirety of my my existence. And not only that, but I've had the opportunity to learn from writings uh such as on the incarnation. I've had I've had you know, 2000 years of church history that I've been able to pull from. And I don't think I could write anything near what Athanasius writes. No. And and no. really all he had at that time was what he learned uh from the bishop in Alexandria and you know what he learned from the scriptures. And yeah. that and that was enough. That was enough for him to come to the right conclusions about who Jesus was mm-hmm. and about why uh his deity was important for for the Christian faith. And so uh just a couple of, you know, uh, trivia items, uh, you know, most scholars uh, will place him being born somewhere in the late 290s. Yeah. Um, and like you said, we really don't hear anything from him until uh, until he starts being trained in Alexandria. And so he was a, a bishop in Alexandria, which was uh, near Egypt. And he, oh, I'm sorry, he was not the bishop, but he was a deacon in that right, church. Right, right. Um, it was actually Alexander. He, well, he did become the bishop but that was uh, later. Later, later on, yes. Right, right. So he was... So he became a deacon in the church in Alexandria, and he was being trained, and uh, he eventually did become uh, the bishop in Alexandria. And one of the, when people hear Athanasius, probably one of the first things they think of is either on the incarnation or they immediately think of the Arian controversy. Yeah. And although although the incarnation on the incarnation is not the direct result of the uh, the Arian controversy, um, I think that. Sort of understanding what that was uh, kind of gives us a window into who Athanasius was, but then also why he thought these things were were important. And so, like I said, most scholars place the writing of this book around uh, around the early twenties, you know, eighteen, yeah. nineteen, twenty ish. Um, and really, the Arian controversy really hadn't been kicked off until probably the mid twenties, I would guess. Well, and maybe you know, I mean, that's when it starts being popularized, right? But I right. mean, you, there there were some there were some ground swells earlier than than mid twenties. It, it's probably it's probably you know early twenties when it when, right. when you start really it starts to get some ground swells and stuff. Yeah, but I mean, it's a full on teaching, right? You know? So so go ahead and take us into that uh, for just a few minutes. What exactly yeah. was the Arian controversy? For see, who who was Arius? Uh, what were the things he was teaching? Why? Did Nicholas punch him in the face? You know, <laughs> kind of, kind of get us in, into that just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Arius uh, was um, he was he was came up in the church, and I believe it was even the same church right, right. there he, beside. He was a Athanasius. deacon as well. Yeah. With Athanasius, uh, there is all likelihood that they knew each other, uh, and 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 that Athanasius and uh, Arius are 
having completely different ideas about who Christ is, but they're serving side by side. And then as they as they grow in, uh, for Athanasius's case, when he grows closer to Christ and his understanding of who he is, and Arius grows closer to his heresy and, and locks in on that, um, then then the then there's a, a a shift and there's a split. You know, so they they served they served together. But Arius, okay, so he he was trained up in the church and 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 he came up with this idea or he popularized this idea that said that Jesus uh, is not equal with the Father, that he is a creature. That is to say, that Jesus is a created being. Hmm. Which causes massive trouble within Christianity, within right. the church at the time. There are a lot of things the church does that speaks to Jesus is more than a creature. He is more than a created thing. For example, we worship Jesus. We worship no created thing, we say. And therefore, to say that Jesus is a creature, he is a created thing, means we are putting worship on a created being. Right, right. That is patently wrong in all forms of Christianity. That is patently wrong. We do not worship the creature. We worship the creator. Um, he was starting to see a lot of followers come over to his belief system as well. Uh, and because of that, the, the church called a council, the Council of Nicaea in 325, and they gathered together to discuss this controversy, the Arian controversy, and to figure out, okay, what does Scripture say? Is Jesus God? Is he deity or is he a created being? And Tempers flared there. You've already made reference to it. Uh, Nicholas was there. Uh, Saint Nicholas, uh, for those sitting at home. And yes, we do this mean... Is, this is the same Saint Nicholas that, that drives a sleigh, right? Every, Pulled by reindeer. I mean, every year, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> no, he, he's, he's actually a, a real historical figure. Uh, and he was there at the council and uh, famously got so upset at Arius while they were discussing these things at the Council of Nicaea, he walked right up to him and slapped him in the face. Man. Um, man. I wonder how that would go today in, in, you know, church staff meetings or maybe meetings with other churches if, you know, just one of the pastors got upset and just went and punched the other guy in the face. Listen, I don't, I don't think that would go over very well. It, I think it, I think many would say that that's, you know, not not Christ-like. I think so. I think we'd probably, you know, look at that and we would say uh that's a foul. You know, obviously they looked at it then and they said that's a foul, Nicholas, you know. And and we 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 do laugh about it because when we think of Saint Nicholas, we think of this jolly old elf who drives a sleigh, you know, and right, this kind of right. place of, you know, and the fact that he he was he a fighter. Walked up there, yeah, and he 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 will slap a heretic in the face. It's a funny idea to have in our minds. But Athanasius was there at that council as well. 
But Athanasius didn't really say a lot. He didn't he didn't write the Nicene Creed. He was not the prevailing voice there. In fact, the big dog on campus wasn't Nicholas either. The prevailing voice, the big leading figure there, uh, would have been the guy that Athanasius was training under, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria. Right, right. And they came out of the Nicene Council, and, 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 and they had the Nicene Creed that came along with it, and they denounced Arius and Arianism as heresy. And they exiled, they excommunicated um, him, and, and he, was, he was gone and, and, and kind of thought that it was, it was dealt with, settled and done. Uh, hmm. Ironically, it was not, uh, and it's still is not to this day. Uh, we actually still see this heresy, the the Arian controversy, still alive in our day and time, even here sitting in 2020. Right. Well, this is, you know, Arius is, is uh, sort of quoted with saying, and this was sort of the, uh, really what was behind his teachings. Um, he said, if, if the father begat the son... He that was begotten had a beginning of existence. Mm -hmm. Hence, it is that there was uh, when the son was not. It's kind of an odd, sort of archaic way to formulate that sentence, but we'll kind of break it down here in a second. Uh, It follows then of necessity that he had his existence from non-existence. And essentially what he's saying is that if the father begat the son, that means there was a point in time when the son was not. Right. And then the father begat the son, and then the son became into being. And like you said, this is, you know, this isn't simply just a, you know, a, a different way of understanding that because there's room for those sorts of things in within the Christian faith. You know, we do, uh, we do sort of place some boundaries around, you know, things that are essential and we distinguish between the essential and the non-essential things. And so there's room for for some differences and even for some different understandings in the non-essential things. But when it comes to who Christ is and w- what his nature is, there's really no room for, yeah, for that's, misunderstanding. That's an essential. You don't flex on it. You right, know what I mean? Like, right. that's, that's one that you've got to be concrete on. And, and two, uh, Arius, and, and, and one of the things that's argued, John 1, 1. Right. Uh, it, uh, well, John 1, 1 through 3 says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is talking about Christ, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And here's the verse that that sticks it to Arius, is verse 3. It says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Right, if, right. if this is talking about Jesus, then he created all things. There was nothing that was created apart from him. From apart from him, he cannot be a created being. Right, right. And and like you said, you know, in 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 Romans one, Paul really lays out what what the problem with the world is. And and one of the things he mentions is that we exchange uh, the truth about God for a lie. We worship yes. the creature rather than the creator. And if we turn Jesus into this created being, that's essentially what we're doing. Is we're we're shifting our worship from the one true God who is worthy of worship into uh, onto a created thing. Which, when you break it down to, you know, to its foundation, it's it's just utter foolishness. Right. Well, something that is created is not worthy of worship. 
because it clearly had to be made. Wouldn't the thing that made it be more worthy of worship? I mean, even it if would you be take, more worthy of worship. But also, if we do worship it, then guess what? I can eventually get to the level. If if he was a created right, thing right. and I'm a created thing, I can be a created thing equal to that created thing, and you can worship me too. I right. can make it to that point as well. And like you said, that's uh, that's where we see the Aryan controversy really alive and well today. Is is even today we have people denying the deity of Christ and trying to make him into something something yeah. else. And and I think it was Walter Martin who said that if if you want to distinguish any of the the cults from true Christianity, you have to ask the question, what do they do with, with Jesus? Right. Like, like who do they say that Jesus is? And I'm probably, probably misquoting him or, or paraphrasing him. And it might've been somebody else. I don't, I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure that that was Dr. Walter Martin who, who, who made that point. And, and the reality is, is that we do see some, you know, quote, Christian cults, uh, yeah. uh, claiming, to be true Christians, claiming to hold to the scriptures and yet denying the deity of Christ. Uh, one of the first ones that comes to mind is is the Mormons, the, mm. the Latter-day Saints. Mm. Um, their, their official doctrine says that Jesus was a man who became God, and that we are men who also can become gods one day. And these kinds of things, it, it, you know, if you go back again into history, these things were recognized and denounced in the fourth century. Right. That's what's pretty incredible is that they were able to recognize these things in the fourth century. But there was staying power even then. A- after, after Nicaea, um, Arius was, he was excommunicated. He was kicked out. Um, but I, and I don't know what these conversations looked like. I have no idea what the interaction was, but somehow, uh, Arius was able to, to, to bend Constantine's ear. Somehow he was able to, to work and weasel his way back into his good graces. And so before Constantine dies, Constantine revokes the excommunication, revokes the, uh, the fact that he had been in exile and allows Arius to come back in. Now, at that same time, the church is looking at this and they're saying, wait a minute, we've already settled these things. We've already handled this. And then the leading voice at the council who, who waged war against it, Alexander, he dies. And when he dies, Athanasius is appointed to the bishop of Alexandria. And so the leading voice, the guy who everyone would have been looking at to go against Arius is no longer a factor. And so all of a sudden, where do the eyes go to? They go to Athanasius. And Athanasius becomes the leading predominant voice against Arius in in fighting for what the creed said that the council had decided on at Nicaea in 325. And in fact, it's it's a it's a, a devastating blow that Arius comes back and then it's Athanasius who's appointed the bishop and you see the the I guess kind of the 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 square off or the the you know the the lines are drawn and you see the the quote unquote fighters about to to duke it out. And Constantine gets his hands into the mix. And Constantine, again, 
having his ears tickled by Arius, looks at Athanasius and is convinced that he is practicing sorcery and that he is, uh, you know, involved in witchcraft and all these kinds of things. And he actually exiles Athanasius. Really? Yeah. He actually exiles him. And uh, what an interesting turn of events. And this couldn't have been, I mean, within a few years. No, right? no, it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was very early on. I mean, the, the turnaround is crazy. But once Constantine dies, uh, it, it, because um, the next emperor always looks to try and, and make some sort of grand gesture to, to say he's superior to the previous emperor. Uh, Athanasius is brought back into the fray. He's brought back out of exile. But in the time that Athanasius was spent away in exile, Arius took that time to really ingrain his teachings into the church and into society. And so when Athanasius gets back, he's not looking at a person who is is barely back off of being denounced as a heretic and just uh, scrimping and, and scrapping his way back up to the surface. He's looking at someone who has ingrained his teaching into the culture. And so Athanasius has to throw himself into a fight everywhere. And Athanasius, man, he, he, he goes up against every single uh, a person that that brings it to him, and and whereas before Alexander passed, he would have been the prevailing voice, but now Athanasius has taken up the call of the church and of Scripture, and he said, "No, I'm going to fight for the recognition of the deity of Christ." And in in actuality, Athanasius, because of his fight against this this belief that Jesus is just a created being because he fought so hard against it. Athanasius was actually exiled a total of five times, five times, five times. And, and all of them, he, he was, he's allowed to come back, but, uh, of his, man, I, I believe it was a, he was 45 years a Bishop. He spent half of those years in exile that is unreal. Because he was fighting for something that was already settled in 325, already settled. But the the idea that people don't want a Christ who is their God, they want a Christ that they can be. Right, right. And he had to, that, that is such a, an appealing idea to people who want to be their own God. And he was fighting against it his entire uh, his entire service and ministry. Uh, in fact, there became a, a a phrase about Athanasius: Athanasius contra mundum, and it means Athanasius against the world, because that's what it seemed like he was going up against. He's fighting everywhere right, against right. the world, but it was for the cause of Christ. And uh, what a remarkable thing to know that the groundwork for every single one of his arguments, the foundation that he uses in every single one of those interactions, he wrote down 
the clear biblical scriptural teaching five, six years before the Nicene Council ever came in, in, in the book on the yeah, incarnation. Yeah. And there, you know, just, just in talking about uh, Athanasius' life, uh, the uh, all the things that he was involved in, all of the, uh, you know, like you said, Athanasius' contramundum, the fact that he was constantly contending for the faith and constantly battling uh, everyone, battling the culture, battling uh, other church leaders. You know, there, there are a couple of things that, that kind of strike me as odd just on the front end is that, like you said, Athanasius had already put these things into print. Uh, these things were, you know, quote, settled at uh, the Council of Nicaea. Uh, and, and yet, once Arius is released from his exile, he's able to spread his his heresy all over the church. And that kind of, like I say, it strikes me because how is it that the truth can be proclaimed, the truth can be settled, and and yet false teachers can come in and just completely upend the boat in just a, a matter of short you know, a few short years. Right. It kind of makes you wonder what were, so they settled these things and then what did they do? Did they neglect to, to teach these things? Did they just sort of point to the council and go, Oh, it's, it's settled over there. There's, there's no reason to, to talk about these things anymore. And yet when Arius comes in, it, it's almost easy for him to just start speaking his lies and people just kind of accept it. And it kind of, you know, makes me, you know, it makes me pause for a second and, and, and to recognize that, uh, well, first and foremost, the Scripture says that heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word will by no means right, pass away. Right. And so we can have a hope and we can have a faith that regardless of what happens in our day, regardless of what happens in the future, the Word of God is going to stand forever. Right. Um, and yet there's, there's almost a sobriety when looking at our culture to say that just because these things are fixed, just because uh, just because the word of God is not going to pass away, that doesn't mean I don't have work to do. Right. That doesn't mean I, I I can neglect the the proclamation of His truth. That doesn't mean that I can neglect the, the study of His word and and passing those things on to the next generation and to my kids and and to their kids. Uh, to just sort of assume that because these things are fixed, we can sort of take a hands off approach is is in my mind that that's what we see happening in the life of Athanasius is that people decided to take a back seat people looked at uh people looked at these things and said I'm you know hey it's been settled at the council there's no need to to get back into it yeah. and yet we see that you no know, there was a lot of reason to do a lot more right. work before we all settled down right and and, and Athanasius was the one who who took up the mantle and said, you know what? If if nobody else is going to fight for these things, I I'm going to fight for these things. Right. I'm going to stand for the truth, and I'm going to I'm going to proclaim the the truths of Scripture, regardless of what what you know, come hell or high water, regardless of who comes at me. You know, Athanasius contramundum. I'm against the world, and I have no problem doing that because and it's I have Christ on my side. It's intriguing that that phrase, Athanasius against the world, because when the, what they're saying is. The world was against him, like everywhere was against him. Right, right. You know that he was he was beset on all sides, and yet being beset on all sides and constantly being uh, in a position to have to fight for the faith and for uh, the proclamation of the deity of Christ. Besides having to endure all those things, we look at. The clear teaching of Scripture. We look at the the 
the preserved uh, teaching of Scripture, and we see the 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 truths proclaimed in in works like this, and we say, "Wow." We say the Arian controversy might be tenacious, and 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 heresy might be always on the attack, but the truth will by no means ever be fatigued. Right. You know, right. and 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 the the problem comes when we ourselves become fatigued with the truth, uh, and 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 so, you know, you look at 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 people today. They want to believe that they are their own God. They want to believe that they can be good enough. There are people within the church who desire to hear those things. And that's why we've got all these false churches, even proclaiming to be Christian churches, that are saying, you are enough, you are the end, you are the great and glorious good. And they're exalting what? A created creature above the creator. They will be tenacious in pursuing that. But the truth will never, ever be fatigued. The problem comes when we, as the church, become fatigued with the, tr- with the truth. Yeah. The truth will never be exhausted, but we become tired of it. And that's why it's so good to go back and to read some of these old historical and ancient writings because you see, man, they were tenacious in fighting for it and they were long suffering in it. And it is, it gets us to reach a point where we aspire to let me be that same, uh, tenacious and long suffering and exalting servant of our mm-hmm. Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I love, uh, the, I love reading this every year. Because I see it so plainly laid out that our Savior who is born in a manger as a child, that that baby who was really flesh and blood, that child was holding the universe together even while he was in a manger. And to be able to still be fascinated and blown away by that truth and be able to proclaim it and to be able to say, this truth is not exhausted and I must never grow weary of it. What an incredible and amazing example Athanasius set that we can take up today. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of On the Incarnation, and we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ. Now, this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our discussion sparks meaningful conversations with friends and family as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ during this holiday season. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives.